Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending July 3. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you will hear us speak to comedian Rama Nicholas about her new show, The Lucky Ones, and me chatting about my most recent baby scan. That's very exciting. And also, uh, we got to chat to Michael Harden. Uh, for Food Interlude. He spoke about the future of food home delivery services. Uh, I um, went out for dinner, had a, had a palmer and a pint. It was great. And also Simon Hinckley, Bugman, came in to talk about fleas. Uh, Esther Anatolidis, an arts and architecture advocate, joined us to discuss the City of Melbourne's plans for Melbourne uh, after we recover from COVID. COVID, And we spoke to Ben Olm, a, uh, the EP of Who Gets to Stay in Australia, a fascinating op doc on SBS. Triple R. Known for her multi-character solo shows, Rama Nicholas is a comedian, actor, writer, two-time Golden Giver nominee and recipient of the Moosehead Award at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Now, as acts across the world transition into live online performances, Rama is starring in The Lucky Ones, a romantic comedy adventure unlike any other. And to tell us about it, the renowned improviser joins us on the line now. Rama, welcome to Breakfasters. Hey, thanks for having me. Our absolute pleasure. But really, how is an improviser whose whole life swirls around interaction coping in ISO? Yeah, it's actually, well, you know, I'm not doing that much impro these days. I know a lot of people (laughs) are. (laughs) There's a lot of people doing like impro classes and teaching and and performing impro online and all that. But I just kind of stepped back a bit from it. I wasn't sure if I really wanted to do that, if I was that inspired to improvise online because um, I'm also an actor and a writer. So my my shows, are, my solo show that you just announced was uh, is scripted. So, so I have those kinds of skills as well. So, mm. yeah, yeah, but I mainly like um, – I mainly like I teach a lot. I teach a lot of improvisation and I do that overseas. And um, yeah, yeah, for me, all my work, as soon as COVID hit, all my work fell away, all my touring, everything fell away. So I kind of turned back to my scripted work uh, for inspiration during this time. You you mentioned teaching improvisation. What do you, what is that? You know, is that life-changing for a lot of people? You know, and also are there any principles of improvisation that you think should have broader application or that, you know, regular citizens could maybe take from this impro world? Yeah, um, I have seen people really changed by improvisation, like really life changed, and then they become super impro nerds and <laughs> uh, <laughs> and fill their whole life with improvisation. And um, uh, yeah, and, and ma- it's mainly about how the how improvisation affects people in a really positive way because we're um, trained to say yes. And to be positive because our natural instinct is to say no to things, to kind of block things because of fear. Um, but we train and train and train to say yes to things and it builds this immense sense of positivity and teamwork and um, this gives people like such a great sense of um, well-being. Uh, so, yes, I think in real life we can probably do a bit more of that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. With – um. With your scripted stuff that you do, how much of an influence has your, you know, your 
improvisational past had on on what you script? Like, yeah, do you think it, 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 is there a, like a relationship there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm not a very disciplined writer. I'm I get kind of antsy. I'm not very good at staring at computer screens for long periods of time. I know people that do that and sit all day in front of a computer and they just are amazing, you know. Um, uh, but for me, I really need to be on my feet and improvisation has really helped me um, uh, be a writer in that uh, I will have an idea, I'll write it out and then I'll, you know, I'll kind of write out the rough rough idea of the scene of what, what I want and then I'll get it on my feet and improvise it to see what kind of characters are there and what they want to say and I might record that um, uh, as an audio or video and then I'll retype it and then I'll do it again. So I'm constantly back and forth from the computer on my feet uh, and then back to the to the screen. But I think if anyone heard me rehearsing they'd think that I'm a crazy woman, like total <laughs> multiple personality disorder, you know, because I'm, I'm pl- I played, um, you know, lots of different characters at once. So, yeah. I have well, seen, yeah, your, sorry, one of your, your previously, uh, your previous plays and it was, uh, yeah, I, th- I find it astounding your depth of range in, in characters that, that you're able to do on stage in such a small amount of time and with minimal, um, you know, it's not like you have big props or costume changes or anything like that. It's just you and, you know, your voice and it's really, you know, quite um, quite amazing. I want to know, though, um, when you write, like you write stuff that, that you completely make up. I guess with other comedy and stuff, there's always an element of, of this happened to me and it's all, you know, it's a bit bi- self-biographical. But, but with you, it's all made up. Like where does it all come from? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you know, um, just between us, there are elements of me in there. <laughs> um, and my, I am – you know, I have this thing where I use my characters to really um, hide behind in a way and uh, and my opinions on life and my, um, you know, my, uh, uh, yeah, my opinions basically come out through my characters. But, um, yeah, I think I'm not sure where they come from. <laughs> they, they come from, uh, I mean, being inspired by different genres and also, you know, um, wanting to play strong female lead characters um, and have stories revolving around strong female um, identifying characters. So that's really inspiring to me. Uh, Yeah. Well, tell us about how all this culminates into your new show, The Lucky Ones. Yeah, so The Lucky Ones I first performed in 2017 at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, and then at the Melbourne Fringe, and then um, and then it won an award to go and was taken on tour up to Brisbane to the powerhouse there. So that was amazing. Uh, so um, the Lucky Ones is a romantic erotic adventure, and I just want to be clear about that because <laughs> it is super sexual. Um, <laughs> But in um, kind of in a kind of very 
oh god, I don't know what the word is. Uh, let me let me explain that it's it's um, based on those old lady um, romance books, the ones um, that look like Mills and Boone. They look oh, really yeah. innocent. Yeah, but inside uh, they're like full on like sexy erotic um, literature. Like, and you wouldn't think that your grandma would be reading that kind of thing, but it's actually really quite saucy. Like, I'm talking really saucy. <laughs> so, like this Harlequin kind of brand uh, of book. Um, and uh, yeah, so I was really fascinated with these books, and so I did a lot of research on them, which was fun. Um, terrible for feminism. So let's. Just- <laughs> Let's just put that How out there. How many did you have to read? Norms. Huh? How many did you have to read to for your research? Oh, I read a few, uh, and it was mainly about because they're really cheap as well. Yeah. Like they're total pulp fiction. Um, I read quite a few because um, they're also a bit of fun. But I was reading it for many different reasons, and one of the reasons was for uh, structure. How does the structure of a romance work? And, you know, I also watched a lot of romantic comedies um, and also how to write an erotic uh, love scene or sex scene, which was really interesting, really interesting. It's very um, uh, – it's not how a lot of people perceive it to be. It's very technical in a way. It's like writing a – it's like writing a fight scene or, a, um, you know, an action scene because you have to choreograph every single movement and that every single movement has to make sense and all the emotional uh, intentions behind it. Um, yeah, so it's it's really interesting. Wow. Do you have a favourite PC euphemism? Uh, sorry, PG euphemism? Or? <laughs> <laughs> PG euphemism. Oh, okay. Well, um have a, I have a lot. <laughs> I could tell you the themes that I use um, that, to write the euphemisms. Uh, there's a lot of like seafood themes. Oh, yeah. Especially for women's genitalia. Oh, my God. Um, and a lot of um, like I, so I write it like a ye olde times romance. There's a lot of seafood and, and ocean themes around the that and then I write a sci-fi romance and there's a lot of like space kind of big black mm. hole kind of yeah. Yeah. Uh, euphemisms around around genitalia in that black hole. <laughs> so maybe dinner before the show <laughs> yeah. um, can, can this show is supported by the city of Melbourne's COVID-19 arts grant um, what do you how did that come about how valuable is that what are your impressions of how the arts have coped and, you know, what, what do you foresee for Melbourne's arts community moving forward? Oh, gosh. Okay. So um, the grant is amazing. So Carrie Hardy applied for that through Serious Comedy um, and she wanted to produce a couple of us under that kind of grant and then she she got the funding, which is amazing. And those um, little grants rolled out really fast at the top of COVID, which was Super helpful because for me also, I, you know, I all my work had fallen away. Everything had gone in like about four days mm. of COVID hitting. Yeah, everything, all my tours. Um, and I also individually applied for one of those grants and got it to write my next show. So that's amazing. So it's just like a, a grant for the development um, of the writing process, which is fantastic. Um, but Carrie applied for this and she's uh, she started, you know, really working on this online um, 
online shows, um, which is amazing for for us ind- independent artists that are struggling at this moment. And I think independent artists have been hit the hardest in a lot of ways. Um, we don't have any safety nets. We're out there trying to do it ourselves often. You know, um, some of us have wonderful producers behind us like Carrie, um, but a lot of us are just self-produced as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, with in terms of like are you asking about, are you kind of referring to the funding that's just come out? Well, it's, it's, I mean, look, we're out of time anyway, but I, I, I am curious about whether you're optimistic about the future. Um, and I know we're adapting here. Like for instance, your show is a, am I correct in thinking it's a pay what you can model? Yeah. Pay what you can. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Look, I, I don't know. I'd love to be optimistic. (laughs) I would be, but you know, it's the arts and it, Let's face it, I mean, the funding that's come out from the government is great and we're very thankful, but it's really not enough compared to what other industries have been given by the government. Um, and we have such so many um, amazing, amazing uh, artists on all levels, in all levels of the industry. And I just, you know, I just hope that people are going to find ways to cope yeah. yeah. Well, The Lucky Ones is on this Saturday, July 4 at 8.30pm. You can go to seriouscomedy.com.au uh, for tickets and more details. And uh, we've been speaking with comedian Rama Nicholas. Thanks so much, Rama. Thanks for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Big day for you, Sarah. What happened? Yesterday. Oh, I had my 20-week yeah. scan for the, Congratulations. For the baby. It's growing. What is that, halfway? Halfway. It was so exciting seeing it. We have an app. Andrew and I both have an app on our phone that kind of tracks things, and he was very excitedly ran out with the app and the 50% through, and I thought it was very sweet because I'm like, I I feel like I should be the one that's that excited that it's 50% done, Uh, but he was, which was really sweet. Half time, baby. Yeah. Come on. Hopefully uh, we come home well. Um, yeah, just hopefully, yeah, it's not buffering at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Stuck on 99. Yeah, please, no buffering, Jesus. <laughs> God. Uh, it was fun, though. The first CNI we, we had done was peak COVID, and so Andrew wasn't allowed to attend, and I had to sit in the chair and FaceTime him and hold the phone above my head uh, oh. while I was being scanned, kind of – yelling at him and then trying to talk to the la- the lady who was doing it and also try and be in awe of what was yeah. happening. And it was it was a very distracting, weird situation. It's hard situation. to be in the moment when you've got to explain the moment to somebody else yeah. at the same time. Yes, yeah. and you're sitting awkwardly with your hand in the air waving yeah. a, a phone at a screen. Uh, but he's allowed to attend them now, which is really nice. And there's, you know, all the precautions in place, you disinfect your hands a hundred times and wear masks and all of that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, But it was really, it was pretty cool to see. It's very easy despite the fact that I have a big stomach now to forget that there's something happening. And so it was pretty cool to see it happening. I mean, Daniel, I don't know, you probably would have experienced that with Gabe. Like you, just suddenly yeah, there. Yeah. I mean, it's also this, I find maybe the sound of that moment uh, I mean, did, what what did it sound like? like? Did you did you hear anything like through speakers or like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the heartbeat. The heartbeat was very cool. So fast, 
Mm-hmm. And I didn't realise how fast it was. And there's lots of um, – the lady who did it was really great. She had this really soothing – I don't know if it's just what she does but or she picks up on the kind of person that I am. But she had this very soothing manner. And as she'd look at things, she'd go, look at that perfect femur. Look at that beautiful yeah. spine. Look at that – you know, and it's just this – it was this wave after wave of being reassured that yeah. things, just the right language. And if I didn't hear her say something, I'd be – I'd say, is that – is that also a perfect f- finger? <laughs> is that o- is that okay? Uh, and it was funny because the night before we went in, as I mentioned earlier, I'd had a bad week and a bad weekend that Sunday and Andrew had gone and made me some comfort food. So he'd made a palmer for us at home again, but oh, made nice. me a double palmer. Like it was huge. It was two it was two palmers, okay? I ate two yeah. palmers. Well, you're eating for two yeah. now, mate. So two palmers <laughs> for you. To the point where I ate so much that I had to like do laps the lounge room afterwards to try and digest the food properly. And um, when she looked at the baby, she's checking. There's all these little things they're checking. And one of the things is their stomach size. And she goes, oh, that's a big stomach, 70%, like in the 70 percentile. And I looked at Andrew and I went, oh, my God. And I couldn't – I had to contain myself from laughing because I just thought – She's eaten the two palmers. <laughs> I was like, the, ba- the baby's consumed the two palmers that I ate last night. Her stomach's expanded. A couple of palmer babies. Yeah, total um, palmer. It's um, I are you having um any sort of um baby shower? I mean, obviously you can't have a big oh, party. I here's the thing. So all parties. But would you as well? There's two questions. Are you having one? And if even if we didn't have a pandemic, would you still have one? So I don't deal, as you well know, I don't deal with gatherings or birthday parties very well. Uh, they just make me anxious and I feel a lot of pressure to entertain people. And, I mean, rarely do you go to an entertaining baby shower as it is. Yeah. So I think the mental pressure of that would is, is a lot for me. But that said, you get given really cool stuff. And I've given right. so many cool things I really want fun presents. I really want fun baby presents. Did, did, mm. did you guys have a baby shower? Did you, or did you just... Yeah, it was it was over summer. It was at the uh, the beach in the beach shed. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that's an awesome baby shower. Yeah, where because I and then I went overboard with the French martinis and that's oh, that's right. right. How could I forget? See, that's a baby <laughs> shower. Mm. French martinis. But now, what's interesting about these milestones is now f- for Gabe's first birthday, which is still a while off, but she's contemplating having a birthday without him. <laughs> <laughs> just a like, celebration to herself for surviving. Well, one year. yeah, it'll be it'll just be friends uh, and fa- family who want to, you know, be you know, because I, I guess she wouldn't have been adult for ages. Uh, I mean, I know it's incredibly sacrilegious not to invoke. Invite. <laughs> Yeah. Your own child no, to their I'm first birthday, it. but you know I might wear a t-shirt with his face on or something. But they're, <laughs> you know, it's it's just just honestly, get just get like a like, pinata Gabe or something that would. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> that is. But then to see, like a first birthday party, it's never about the child anyway. Nah, so, exactly. What do they know? Precisely. Yeah. I do like. I hadn't heard uh, just. The seventieth percentile. It sounds like a, like an honest dating profile. It does. So, 
my stomach is in the 70th percentile. I just want you to know. <laughs> I'm going to eat two palmers tonight on this day. But I do I do want one. Um, I just need someone to do it. I need someone to organise it. I don't even know if we're allowed to gather. When are people going to be allowed to see me again? I don't know. Uh, well, but I'd like someone to take control of that in my life and yes. uh, organise it and then I don't have to think about it and I haven't made any decisions about baby showers that way. I'm just forced into it Yeah, to get presents. Well, you just, um, like, do you want to play games and stuff at no. your baby shower? No, bar? no, like one to two hours, a few snacks, people can have their champagnes and I don't open yeah. presents in front of people. Oh, mm. Okay. Why not? You it's got, too you uncomfortable. I'm not good at. I'm not good at. Um, I'm not good Come at. Come on, the, just practice now. Here's here's. A, I've given you a present, <laughs> and you've opened it, and it's a um, it's a six pack of um, milk bottles. Oh, we needed these. We really, oh, really needed these. <laughs> Is that okay? That's good. Is it? That's good. Okay. Yeah, but everyone knows you don't need six milk bottles. <laughs> don't you? Yeah. It's a okay. giveaway. <laughs> All right. Uh, here's another one. It's a um, it's a little uh, like jumper that cats crocheted, uh, but mm. um, the sleeves are like different colours. There's one sleeve that's different to the rest of the outfit because she's run out of wool. Oh, cat. You put so much effort into it. It's so I love that it's your quirky style. I love this. See, you can open up presents can I do in it? front of other people. Oh, maybe I will yeah, do it. Sure. It's the same every time though, I've noticed. Oh, Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thanks very much. It's not oh, really anywhere. It's in oh. the register to go. Triple yeah. <laughs> R. As the city of Melbourne plots a long-term path to recovery post-pandemic, it's asking what citizens value and the ways in which the crisis has influenced our hopes and ideas for the future. How we emerge is the subject of a free event, Melbourne Conversations, City of the Future, featuring a range of industry thought leaders. And one, one such speaker is Esther Anatolidis, Honorary Associate Professor at RMIT School of Art, whose background in architecture, planning, cultural policy and arts leadership will see her grapple with questions of urban land use, infrastructure and space needs in Melbourne post-COVID. Esther, welcome to Breakfasters. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, you live and work in Melbourne. Um, from your perspective, what are the scenarios for the city that you're hoping and helping to avoid? Oh, that's a great question because, of course, this whole situation, obviously, we've got a health emergency, we've got a pandemic that has uh, no vaccine that can affect people, uh, even if you're unsymptomatic, and so there's the obvious health effects um, and, and terrible health impacts that we have to avoid. Then there's all the stuff around the way we connect with each other, around our mental as well as our physical health. We don't want to generate you know, a place, a set of communities where we're afraid of each other. We don't want um, businesses to, to um, you know, lose that confidence of, you know, really great things to, to do. And we also don't want a city where um, people are either isolated in fear or um, not finding, not rediscovering those ways to be adventurous together. Uh, so I think there's, there's a lot of things that, that we need to get right through all this. Mm. What what do you think might be the way the role of the CBD changes? 
Oh, look, I think there are a lot of ways that we, we've got to rethink this. We tend to think of the CBD as a place where, uh, you know, all roads lead there, all roads across the state lead there. So that's a kind of a focus and you sort of, um, you know, that's, that, that, that's a place that kind of yeah, draws you as opposed to kind of redistributing you. So we need to think of the CBD as a connector, uh, as a place that um, sends us off in new directions, particularly around the city of Melbourne. But I think in particular... To generate really great ideas for the future, we need to generate those ideas differently. You know, the same kinds of thinking only generates the same kinds of, of results. And so in my discussion paper, I talk about the ways in which we can draw on the way that artists think and work in order to kind of set us off across the city uh, in, in, in games, in scenarios, in spatial exploration, scavenger hunts, uh, different ways of introducing creative thinking to the city that can then become a set of urban planning tactics. Uh, we, we, we need to think in a far more dynamic way. Do you think the pandemic maybe counterintuitively might create some opportunities? I think it absolutely must. I think that is the question. I mean, you know, we, we, we do need to keep in mind, of course, that pandemic has made some things easier for a lot of people, particularly people with disability who are finding spaces far more accessible than they were before. It's, um, it's you know, we're using much less energy. We're probably spending less on things that maybe uh, we didn't need or, or weren't, uh, you know, didn't have such great impacts on the environment. And we're valuing the art a lot more. We're really valuing that creative connection, things we make with our hands, the way that we understand the world through creative practice. So this is a chance to think about, okay, uh, let's take a deep breath, let's imagine that city of the future and let's imagine it in an ethical and generative and dynamic way. What are some examples of the way that you could see our city transformed or changed uh, that, that could be different in the future? Uh, look, I think um, I've in, in the in the paper I set out a range of different ways, so some obvious ways, some kind of like middle ways, and then some far more experimental ways. I think first of all we need to rethink some of the basics of our nine to five um, and and look at the way that we live and work, and particularly work, as uh, responding a lot more to the body's natural daily cycles, you know, that the nine to five is, um, you know, it's it's an, an industrial convenience of a time that is long forgotten. Um, we also need to um, draw on um, the way that um, artists and creative workers live and work and create um, opportunities, events, businesses, and so on, to look at the behavioural change that's needed, you know, physical distancing. When we, um, when we change... Um, our culture, we do change our behaviour. And if we've got ways to keep connecting with each other, expressing ourselves, um, that um, that allow us to, you know, like just really be true to those values that are most important to us, then we do have that confidence in that connection. And then I'd like to see some, you know, far bigger, more experimental, whole of city ways of, of thinking things through um, so that we've got, um, you know, for example, um, what if galleries were open? Than, um, late at night so that we've got those really quiet contemplative ways of enjoying the night out rather than just um, what tend to be um, offerings of 
you know, uh, being in a in a cram performing arts venue, that's going to be a problem for for, for some time. Um, what if we closed up our laneways at lunchtime and, and sprawled a whole bunch of picnics all over the city and looked at ways to occupy that city with our bodies and with our communities in different ways that aren't about um, you know at cars and nine to five businesses and, and ways of being told how to occupy the city. So this is this is really our chance to yeah think that through. Is there anything in particular that Melbourne is already doing well? Like in terms of, like we've got our, yeah. you know, laneways and, and stuff like that. Is there other things that we're doing all right at? Yeah, look, I think that the laneways are often, you know, given as a really great example of, you know, if we focus um, the work of artists in the places where people in the city aren't naturally navigating yet, then we actually expand um, that sense of what the city means and we explore new places. So the Langways Commissions weren't just about great art. They're about saying to us, okay, now why don't you explore this place and that place and then let's see what happens. So that's that's the kind of approach that's that's needed. It's been um, three decades since the city of Melbourne's postcode 3000 strategy transformed the city into a place where people live. That's something that is quite unique um, across Australia in that the city of Melbourne has tens and tens of thousands of residents who are families and older people and younger people and students and a range of different kinds of professionals. So the fact that it is a backyard for so many of us means that we're invested in it as a home. And that's something that, again, uh, is really unique among Australia's capital cities. And so this conversation, it's great the city of Melbourne has got this Melbourne conversation series with the events um, this Saturday afternoon, the 4th of July, and also again next Thursday, the 9th of July, um, because something the city of Melbourne's always done really well is is to ask us, well, what should we do? What you know, what are your ideas? And there's all these ways on the Participate Melbourne website that you can just um, go ahead right now and add your ideas. And I'm just having a look now, and I see there's lots of um, lots of great demand from Melbournians about arts and arts investment, which of course is one of the things that Melbourne does supremely well. Um, I think when you're living out in like somewhere rural or in in the country, it's very easy to um, have a sense of community, um, and I think that's more difficult in the city. Um, like, what are some ways, yeah, that you can, you know, I guess find your community when you when you do live in the city. Oh, I think that for anyone who lives in the city, um, they, you know, we absolutely know that the sense of community is actually really, really strong. Uh, it's something that um, when people tend to move into the city, they stay there for decades and they find new pockets and create new pockets together. Um, and whether it's about, you know, your local cafe or bar, your your gallery where you go and hang out, uh, whether it's about the markets, the green spaces, um, you know, that this is, of course, much more than, than the CBD. And I know that when the... Um, when the city bars opened up again this week, um, and we've had to, uh, in that really sensible, appropriate way, book in to go to our sessions, um, that sense of community of seeing each other again, uh, you know, those of us who, um, you know, that you have this relationship with people where you see each other in various states of undress at ungodly <laughs> hours in the morning, all connecting on the basis of our good health. And that too is an important part of our lives, just as is hanging out with, um, you know, favourite uh, people who sell us great fruit and veggies at the markets or hang out with um, our favourite cafes and restaurants and particular going and um, 
hanging out at um, galleries and artist-run spaces and, and trying to understand how did that artist make that work. Um, all of those things are so important to that community life in, in the city of Melbourne. Just finally, you're a student of Melbourne history as well. Are there any comparable chapters that we can learn from so not to be daunted by the challenges ahead of us? Yeah, there really are. Melbourne's got quite quite adventurous history. I mean, from the early days of, you know, attempts um, at treaty, which we're now seeing um, uh, with the state government's commitment again to really um, develop uh, an appropriate and respectful um, um, uh, relationship and treaty and moving forward um, together um, with the Boonwurrung and the Wurundjeri and, and the other tribes of, of, of Greater Melbourne, hugely important. But of course, um, 100 years ago, um, more than 100 years ago, Melbourne was um, one of the richest cities in the world following those years of, um, of, of, of colonial settlement and then had a massive crash um, and for a number of times, whether it's in the 1890s, the Great Depression, the early 1990s, the centre of the city has been absolutely emptied out, hollowed out by economic decline, and it has always been through creative means, investing in adventurous architecture, talking to uh, those um you know, inventive business thinkers who are who are thinking things differently, um, looking at the transformation of um, excellent um, building stock into places where people can can live. So we've got that track record. It's one of the few cities in Australia and the world that, that, that can really claim to have kept revitalising itself through creative approaches. And so now we need to harness all that more than ever mm. um, and make sure that Melbourne is still a great place to um, live and work. Play. All right. Well, Melbourne Conversations City of the Future One is the first of two free online events. The second is Thursday, 9th of July. Um, but the first one is this Saturday, July 4, from 3 to 5 p.m. You can head to participate.melbourne.vic.gov.au for more info. And we've been speaking with academic and speaker Esther Anatolides. Uh, good luck, Esther, and thank you. Triple R. <laughs> I'm hungry, I want something to eat, something with a crunch and very sweet. Frustrated foodie Michael Harden is here for Food Interlude. Morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> yes, yes, particularly frustrated. <laughs> I'm sorry about everything. <laughs> More than you, grumpier than usual. <laughs> what, uh, what... What issues are being thrown your way this week? Well, I kind of thought that I'd have a little chat about um, delivery services um, with food, given that um, the whole nature of the restaurant industry has been disrupted by um, coronavirus. And um, how the, the sort of this has sort of thrown a spotlight on delivery services, particularly when you're talking about multinational companies like Uber Eats and Deliveroo and the sort of charges that they're doing because it's sort of like to start like you know pre the whole crisis it was um delivery services were kind of like a, an added choice about restaurants you know you could sort of choose it was one of those things you could choose to eat at home you could choose not to you know go out and sit in a restaurant you could get them to deliver to you but now that you know restaurants are either reclosed or um you know catering to 20 people at a time it's sort of delivery has become a matter of survival 
for restaurants. And it's really shone a spotlight on particularly the two biggest apps, which are, you know, as I said, Uber Eats and Deliveroo, the huge amount of commission that they're charging restaurants that are making it virtually impossible for restaurants to make any money out of this. But at the same time, they're caught in a bind because it's the only way that they can get some kind of revenue coming through the door. So you're talking about, you know, with Uber Eats um, is between a 30 and 35% commission on Mm. every order. And it's sort of like, you know, they've, they've done some, the research that they've done by a couple of other smaller startups that are sort of starting to trying to disrupt the disruptors um, are saying that, you know, for a restaurant to be able to make any money or even break even on these sort of things, 15 to 17% of a bill is about as much as they can fork out. So these apps are making a huge, you know, sort of like taking a huge amount of profit. And Interestingly enough, they're not that profitable themselves. So it's sort of it's not it's a it's a business model that's not doing all that well in itself. You know, they're uh, you know I don't think you could say that they're crying poor. Um, you've got uh, you know they're probably that the delivery industry is probably worth close to seven hundred million dollars a year. Um, which they're taking out. And, um, you know, when you've got a, got a uh, place like Uber Eats that is, you know, able to um, afford Kim Kardashian as a spokesperson, um, you know that they're not doing too badly. But at the same time, they are refusing to drop their rates, even given that there's been, you know, a bunch of different um, um, peti- online petitions and stuff saying that, you know, they should be dropping their um, their rates and it would be good for their image and all of that sort of stuff. So it's kind of quite an interesting um, situation with the delivery apps because in the beginning they were there as like their their whole idea was that so they were sort of mainly targeting more high-end restaurants so that you could get an experience at home um, that you, you know, if you couldn't afford to go to a restaurant like say, I don't know, flower drum, for example, and um, you could get sort of some kind of experience like that at home. So that was the original thing, but it quickly morphed into basically being almost essential for restaurants to have this. And when they were could be open for business, then they were able to sort of swallow the costs a bit and it was sort of a mar- almost a marketing thing that you had to be at a sort of a delivery arm. But now that it's not, um, things have changed a lot. Mm. Can you Can you help by picking up the food yourself? Yeah, well, this is a thing. I think people need to, this is what I'd really love for people to do to help our industry is to call restaurants themselves rather, because, you know, Deliveroo has three options when you when you ring and you can go, you, there's a pickup service where you pick it up yourself. There's an option for restaurants to use their own delivery or then there's an option for them to use delivery drivers and they all use a different, they all cost a different amount of money. So obviously the delivery driver one is the sort of the top one. But even when you're, if you order your food through delivery and choose to pick it up yourself, delivery is still taking commission from that mm. restaurant, which yeah. seems ridiculous to me. So, you know, instead of like, I know it's ease of use, you know, it's on your phone, there's an app, you can go straight to it, there's pictures of the food, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you can go straight to the restaurant itself and, um, you know, are able, you know, you can talk to them and you can sort of go and pick it up and then they get 100% of the money that you're paying. Mm. So it's, the, it's that kind of thing where I think the whole delivery thing is going to change. This is going to change the whole delivery service. It's not going to go away. People are used to this sort of thing and they expect to be able to get delivery 
um, from people, but there are other ways to do it. Like, um, for example, there's a um, there's a startup in Melbourne called it's called Mister Yum, and um, they sort of like it started off as a restaurant uh, as a restaurant app where you could before you went to a restaurant, you could have a look online and there were photos of the food and there were descriptions of what went into the food and that sort of stuff. So it was like informing yourself before you went to the restaurant. But now they're kind of sort of like, they've sort of, I'm not going to use that word, but I am pivoted to, um, <laughs> it's like, please, can we find another word? Kind um, of bingo, yes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, they are sort of like, you know, they're, they're now able to sort of, you can now order online because there was sort of like like an orderable um, function on their app, and you can use that um, instead. And they take a four point five percent commission on on orders and things. So, and there's another one in Brisbane that's sort of like you know doing it's sort of like a it's like their own bubble where they're sort of um, it's a one called up toasted i think it's called yeah up toasted and um they have their own drivers and they've got their own pool of restaurants they've got between around about 20 restaurants um so you're not getting the like unlimited choice that you perhaps you get from uber eats um but at the same time they're doing something you know it's sort of like they're only taking i think they t they take about a 15 percent commission so it's sort of like within the, the the ballpark of where a restaurant can actually make some money and pay some people and keep open mm. so i think I, I notice that some of the larger apps have uh, introduced a method where you can tip the restaurant and tip the person that's delivering it. So it's kind of putting it back into the consumer's hands to make that ethical choice as you're ordering. Do you think that's – is that helping or is that just a cop-out in your eyes? I think so as far as I'm concerned, it's Band-Aid. You yeah. know, they're sort of trying to make themselves look good. It's like, look, we're making it, you know, easier for you to tip your driver, you know, and it's like, which is a great thing. Please tip your driver. But at the same time, it's like, hey, why don't you drop your commission 10%? Yeah. You know, and allow the restaurant because it's all again everything is down to the restaurants mm. you know they've got to foot the bill they've got to you know make the package and everything and the the, the other thing about uber is that like you know even on an aesthetic level the food that you're getting from those restaurants is cooked in the kitchen and then it's sealed up in containers and then it sits in the back of a bike or a or a motorbike or whatever mm. and it steams and it starts to cool the whole time so the food that you're getting is not the same quality as restaurant quality, but you're still paying the same amount. And it's so, yeah. it's like there's, so there's alternatives that are starting up to this, which is, this is the thing that I love about the, you know, that they're starting to disrupt the disruptors. Yeah. Restaurants are starting to sort of take control of this and go, okay, we can do this ourselves. So there's a new thing that's happened um, in Melbourne called Providor, um, which is D-O-O-R at the end. And um, it's a bunch of, like, high-end restaurants. And what they're doing is that they are delivering the food to you, but it's not it's not fully cooked. So you finish it, you dress the salad, you heat the food, you know, you do all of that sort of stuff. So It's, it's like, like those little rolls you buy from the supermarket, the dinner rolls, you bang them in the oven. Yum, absolutely. Yum, yum. So it's, you know, taking all the glamour out of it. <laughs> <laughs> But the nice thing, the nice thing about Pompadour is that they've got their add-ons are not just sort of like tipping mechanisms and stuff. Their add-ons are like you can add a chef to the delivery. So if you want to have a dinner party and they you can add on a, like you pay for a chef and they come to your house and you they will they will heat the food and they will plate the food and they will serve the food oh. to you. 
So it's kind of like, you know, doing a sort of a restaurant thing at home. And like, I love that the, with Provador that they're also doing things like um, there's even a kind of a, a plate, like, you know, there's sort of like crockery store on there as well. So if you're ashamed of your chipped Ikea plates and you're having some people you want to impress around dinner, <laughs> you can actually, you know, get them to come over and, uh, you know, bring some some nice crockery as and well. Mm, yeah. I know this is a luxury, but if you are going to order in, you know, maybe even go to the restaurant and order and have a drink while you're there and wait. Absolutely. And- yeah, yeah. Mm. I think it's, it's just, you know, if we want restaurants to survive, we're going to actually have to sort of get off the couch yeah. And, uh, you know, contact them directly. You know? Yeah, well, steady on there, Michael. Yeah, no, <laughs> <laughs> it's so radical. You know, that's why you have me on here because I'm an edgy maverick. Thanks so much, and uh, we'll talk next week. Yeah, great. Nice to talk. Melbourne's own Triple R. Premiering tonight on SBS, Who Gets to Stay in Australia is an observational documentary series that follows the lives of 13 migrants and their families who want to settle in a country that's immigration laws are among the toughest in the world. With more than 40,000 people rejected every year, we see up close the stories of those whose applications have previously been denied and are in their final appeal to stay. On the line, ahead of the show's launch, is executive producer and Logie Award winner Ben Olm, head of factual and reality at ITV. Studios Australia. Ben, welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning to all of you. Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks, for, thanks for being here. Now, th- this is an Australian television first. Can you speak to the access you've been granted to these families and the, the system that the, they find themselves in? Yeah, certainly. I mean, the statistics lead this story, which is every, every you know, for all the debate about boat people and Christmas Island and, you know, ministers with their discretionary powers to let in, uh, you know, French au pairs, Every three minutes, someone is, is, is given permanent residency. So there's a new Australian every three minutes. So the premise is, who are they? And um, the challenge for us was to take what on face value might be quite an administrative process, which is you fill out a form and you put in your best case and then you wait for the government to say yes or no. Um, but to actually uh, um, f- capture the moments that matter in, in what really is a very, very high stakes story. If you think about people who were motivated to leave the country that they had been raised in to come here for love or for safety or for family or for business reasons, the stakes in that moment are very, very high. Um, and so th- the whole series really swings on whether we could have been there in that moment. Now, in a series which is quite, you know, in a, in a system which is quite baffling and quite, you know, elongated and not really tr- transparent. That was that was very tricky, and so our our methodology was to engage with the lawyers and the agents who are advising and advocating on behalf of these people. So through them, we found the people who were brave enough to share their story and to uh, go on the journey with us, and um, and through um, just you know just some strategic um, placement of crews and being able to be there uh, when we knew there was going to be a decision coming down. Uh, we managed to capture those moments, and it really does. It really does um, uh, reinforce, you know, that these are life-changing moments, you know, and it's, um, you know, uh, I think you can see that played out in the series. Mm. You also get access to the administrative appeals tribunal. That's correct. Yeah, that, that's that's definitely a TV first. Um, and this was the, you know, you guys aren't old enough to remember a, a program called Green Card. It was a film starring Gerard Depardieu many years. I remember it. Remember Green Card? <laughs> and, yes. Um, and there was that moment where they were preparing to convince the third party or convince the government that they were truly in a relationship. 
Now, in their case, they weren't, but then they fell in love anyway. And I wanted to have a scene where people were going back over their own lives in preparation to convince a judge, or a member in this case, that they were truly together, to make their case one-on-one. Because I'm sure with your own partners, can you remember what you had for dinner last Thursday, or their brand of cologne, or or the last argument you had? Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, but when, in, under the glare of a court environment, that's very, very hard. So over, I, I think, maybe six, seven, eight months, we carefully negotiated with the Administrative Appeals Tribunal to have cameras in there to film one of those sessions. And I think it's important to see that because it's, um, you know, it's not really the lawyers speaking in, you know, in legalese. It's someone standing there, sometimes, you know, fighting for their life, making their case to an individual member who has a lot of compassion in, in how they consider the cases because every case is full of detail and backstory and baggage. And um, in, a, in one of our episodes, we did manage to um, to be there and uh, and see that case play out. Sometimes when you see these um, immigration, immigration stories come up in the news, the decision-making process from someone who has no understanding of it seems really arbitrary and it's hard to get your head around. Do you think that through watching this program, you kind of get an insight into how these decisions are made? I, I, I would hope so. I mean, we had a couple of pledges at the start of this series with our whole crew. One was if we start speaking in immigration jargon, like, you know, Victor 501, you know, anyone who says uses numbers to describe a visa loses a finger because I think <laughs> it, it is baffling and, and I, I still don't understand it. So that's number one. We wanted to relate, you know, these two people are in love. They have to convince the government that it's a legitimate relationship. They made a mistake because they stayed over on a, on a student visa but the consequences of not, not being together are, are catastrophic. That, that's storytelling um, pillars. Um, in terms of explaining the government's point of view, that's the other pledge we made was this wasn't going to be a, a sort of a lefty, you know, government bash. It wasn't going to be a polemic about, uh, you know, we should let everyone in. Because, of course, every country needs to have rules and every, every country needs to have border protection. And, uh, and, and so there are some very clear black and white rules but, but the government in this country, which is a good thing, preserves that discretionary power. So if, if say, it's a health issue where you, you've come with, you know, maybe you have a child with Down syndrome, there's a very black and white calculation about the impact on our health system of that child as they progress through their expected life. Now, that seems like a very kind of clinical, callous way of calculating the value of a person, particularly when that person might make all sorts of contributions to society. But, but so that's, that's, that, that's the starting point. Then there's an appeals process, and then beyond that, you can appeal to the minister. And so the minister has, in this regard, more powers than the prime minister. They can sit there, look at the case, um, all the soft tissue in between the hard, the hard facts, and make a determination on that. Mm. So invest a lot of power in that, into that minister, and regardless of what side of politics you look at, we voted for that party and we voted for that policy, and so that's the government that we have. Um, that said, though, I don't want this to be a lesson in in you know immigration law. It's it, it, it needs to connect to people foremost on a personal level. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we we add a name to someone, we see what they what what they what's at stake for them, and I think if it becomes simply a how how to get into this country, it, it's probably failed. 
without being saccharine, there's a lot of ordinary goodness in the show as well. I, I'm thinking of the the Bhutanese family and um, the the former teacher of Kinley. Isn't that a beautiful story? I, I love that story. I love that story. And you're right. This is a Bhutanese family. Their son has learning difficulties. He's he's, he's deaf. Um, both both parent parents have got residency. They've got jobs. Um, but again, the calculation of this kid's impact on the health system alone uh, has put them into peril, and um, and they and they failed every test. And, and I won't tell you how this plays out, but it, it comes down to ministerial um, uh, discretion. Will they, you know, will they as a whole let this family stay in the country? Now they they played by all the rules. They both have jobs. They live in a, a more rural area, so they you know they're not you know they're not cluttering up the inner city. And uh, they're just beautiful people. And as you, as you alluded to before, um, the teacher in Melbourne who taught this kid Auslan, which is the sign language, um, he took up the case and he just started the people campaign, which you see play out in the program. It's also interesting that the amount of time it all takes and, you know, being a TV producer, time is also of the essence. So were you were you thinking, being up close to these stories, like, gee whiz, I wish the department would get their act together. I'd love an end to this story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I lost a lot of sleep over that because every day you have the camera teams or the, the shooter producers going, what are we doing today, you know, and there might be nothing happening today, but you've got to be ready to go when something does happen. So um, it really, you know, it really, really relied on us being very... Um, uh, nimble in how we produce the program because it's it's you know yes there are estimates for how long this process can take. Um, Twenty years ago, if it was a partner visa, that might take three to six months. So if you have to be apart for that period of time, that's okay. You can live with that. Now it's more like two years, two and a half, three years. You've seen from the first episode um, a case of someone they're apart for three and a half years with one half of the of the marriage in India, the other half in Australia. I mean that's that's a that's a that's a very hard journey to to survive. You know, even mm-hmm. marriages even marriages together for that long is hard. You know, so the process is kind of rolled out. That became very very challenging for us um, in the production phases, and so we elected to pick up our stories at the appeal stage, because preceding someone going to appeal, they may have had four or five or six years or even more making their case for staying in Australia. Now, at least at the appeal stage, we know two things. One, they've been rejected, so there's a reason the government says you can't stay. And two, they feel strongly enough about their case that they're going to appeal. And the time frame between that rejection and appeal is a little bit shorter. But even so, like your, your expected waiting time on the appeals tribunal is two years. So it's just, it's uh, yeah, manana is a long time in this in this yeah. business. Well. Who Gets to Stay in Australia is the uh, four-part documentary series. It premieres tonight at 8.30pm on SBS and SBS On Demand, and we've been speaking with uh, executive producer Ben Ong. Thanks so much, Ben. It's my pleasure, and thanks for watching. I really appreciate it. Triple R. For Feature Creatures, Simon Hinckley joins us to talk bug stuff. Morning, Simon. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, um, you're talking about fleas. When when you – I know – look, when fleas come into your life, do you get excited? No. <laughs> okay, so you just like the rest of us. Okay. 
You don't no, go, I here's do. an opportunity for some study or anything? I, I really don't. And, and I, I admit that today it's going to be hard to, to bring the love for the fleas. Like when we were talking about But with the fleas, look, it's a pretty hard little group to, to, um, to get attached to, so to speak. So, um, but they are a really interesting group and they've had an incredibly important impact on, on humans through the centuries, obviously with things like um, the bubonic plague and the Black Death. So they've actually really caused incredible um, changes in sort of the social history and population size and all that sort of thing. So basically um, fleas belong to the, the order Siphonaptera, which literally means wingless siphon. So they're basically um, little bloodsuckers. And they are laterally compressed. So basically imagine like if something's been put in a vice and you tighten the vice so they're sort of like laterally compressed. So any ideas why that might be a useful design for an insect to have? Get in, in tight spaces. Exactly. So imagine you're on a really fluffy, hairy dog person, cat, to be able to sort of weave between the hair and the fur if you've got a claw coming after you to scratch you is, is a really important thing. And I should have mentioned, actually, that um, there's about 2,500 different species of flea around the world. Australia's got about 90. We've got the introduced ones, obviously, the cat flea, the dog flea, things like that. But interestingly, most of Australia's fleas are found only in Australia, which I guess isn't surprising when you think that um, if you think about Australia's unique mammal fauna and its unique flora, we've been isolated for a long time. So the fleas that had developed with our fauna are also sort of very endemic and unusual. So, for example, there's one flea that's found only on echidnas, but then there is an unfortunate native rat that can have up to 22 species of flea. Oh. So that that didn't make me feel good for that particular species, but, you know, that's anthropomorphizing a little bit. Maybe they're relatively okay with that. Mm -hmm. But... Um, what they do is the they also have the uh, another strategy they have as opposed to lice which generally tend to spend most of their time on us the fleas will generally tend to get on have a blood meal and get off so you probably noticed fleas have the ability to jump so you'll look down if you've got fleas on you you go oh gross you go to grab it it's gone so fleas can jump <laughs> about <laughs> at least a hundred so, just that visual. Oh yeah, gross. Oh, it's gone. All right. Yes. <laughs> and you know what's really, really frustrating is when you've got one and you go, "Have I got it?" And you open your fingers to see if you've got it, and you did, and then it's gone. So it's it's a it's an art to flea catching and disposing of fleas. But they can jump at least a hundred times their body length. So without just sort of extrapolating to people, that'd be like me being able to jump from a standing start to about a top of a hundred and ninety meter building. So they have some really good strategies to um, support their life cycle. We have to talk about flea genitals for a little bit because that's one of the other interesting things that they do have. Um, it's the sequel the to We Need to Talk About Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> so interestingly, the, the male um, penis, it's, it's like all coiled up inside the abdomen when it's not being used, and it's actually about two and a half times the length of the body. So, again, without extrapolating, you can imagine if they were people, <laughs> that's fairly uh, impressive. It's a weird thing because it, it's this weird sort of wispy strategy, and I did Google flea penis because I thought if I'm going to talk about them, I need to have seen them. Yeah. I didn't use a work computer, and luckily the only thing I got was flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers in the mood, so it was <laughs> relatively safe. I wonder if that's why he's called flea. <laughs> I don't know why it's called flea. Well, maybe you know, that's he why. Does like, he does like to just... 
not from what I saw. But he does like to do the. Um, <laughs> he does like to do the occasional concert in the nude. So, um, if you so Google should we them, be saying should we be saying hung like a flea and it's a compliment? Could. That's hung what you're like saying. A flea. Although what you could be saying is hung like a barnacle because um, barnacles apparently theirs is eight times the length of the body. So they're like the winners. But fleas fleas are pretty good. Um, but one of the really clever strategies they have for survival is, um, and this is the, the larvae, I have to admit, are fairly gross. So basically the female lays eggs, the eggs hatch into the larvae, and the larvae feed on things like skin and detritus, and basically the adult fleas will pass basically undigested blood, and the, the larvae feed on that. When they're ready to pupate, they go into a, into a cocoon, um, and cleverly what they can do is imagine that you're like you're living on this uh cat or dog or person they leave the house and you've suddenly got no food so the larvae uh, the pupae that are in this cocoon are designed to respond to vibrations so if the house is silent there's no movement they won't emerge new tenants move in they detect vibration vibration equals movement animal equals a host so they'll then emerge from that, jump straight onto the person, the cat, the dog. So you can sort of move into this house that's been uninhabited for months and you suddenly get a massive uh, flea emergence. So it's it's a really clever strategy that they have to go, there's no food here, I'm just going to lie dormant and I can do that for months until someone arrives. So that so sounds really, a little bit like a bed bug. Are they related? They're, they're related in the, in the sense that they're, they're certainly insects, very completely different order of insects, but you're right, that's that. Bed bugs can survive a long period of time without a blood meal. Fleas can also survive a long period of time without a blood meal. Um, similar strategies in the sense that they're not always on the body, like lice. So fleas will feed you, jump off. Bed bugs will feed, get off, that sort of thing. So certainly some some similarities. I guess where the, the fleas are different is, uh, well, one of the, the elements that, that's made them so important in human history is that they are the vectors for the bubonic plague. So obviously the plague has swept across um, Europe, many parts of the world over the centuries. And it wasn't until 1894 that a researcher found that it was a, a bacteria that infects the fleas that are then on the rats that then bite the people and spread the flea. So uh, spread the, the plague. So, um, you know, I mean, I, I know we're sort of obviously going through our own global pandemic at the moment, but when you look back at the, the plague, which, depending on the stats you read, took out up to a quarter of Europe's population, um, really hammered what was Constantinople at the time. So, And, and it came back. You know, there was multiple waves of the plague. And it, it's, it must have been terrifying at that time because if, if they didn't know until later in 94 what caused it, you can imagine the Middle Ages, um, the suspicion it was God's wrath. It was the, quote, uh, what do you call it, um, quotation marks, the foreigners. It was the, if you stared at someone who had the plague, you could get it. So there were all these terrifying um, theories going around. Sometimes people were burnt in their houses alive to, you know, that was considered the way of getting rid of it. So at least now we we know what's causing our current situation and, and how to deal with it. But interestingly, I didn't know that Australia actually had the plague. We got... Um, the first cases of plague arrived in Australia in 1900, thanks to a ship arriving with infested rats. Luckily, because they discovered this bacteria in 1894, we, we knew what to do. So there was a big clean-up in Sydney where it happened. There was um, a bounty paid on rats, so people collected tens of thousands of rats which were burnt. So we certainly had um, plague, but we, with the science, I guess we knew how to deal with it. And I was also surprised that the plague still pops up. Um, I think in the between 2010 and 2015, there were 
I think about three or three to four thousand cases of the plague, um, but it's now quite treatable with antibiotics. So it, it's not the horrific death sentence that it was. Um, but uh, yeah, look, so I don't know if any of that has helped to make people feel better about fleas, but they're certainly a very, um, very aerodynamically designed, clever little uh, critter that has. Um, and basically, sorry, what I should have said too is the the flea that we get most often in our homes, the one that is is the most uh, often one that you find on yourself, is the cat flea. So there's the cat flea, the dog flea, the human flea, and the cat flea will get on the dog, and the dog flea will get on the cat. But the cat flea is the one that we have the most often in Australia. If you do have a, like a flea issue at home, can I just yeah, right. really quickly ask you? I'm yeah. so sorry, just out of interest. A vet once told me you don't have to flea dogs during winter; you just flea them during summer because fleas are only around in the summer. Like other bugs, is that true? No, no, that's not true. Because oh, basically, um, God. Uh, <laughs> don't change vets. Um, because basically, like if you, well, I suppose it depends. If your dog is an indoor dog, you've got your air condition, you've got your heating on. It's nice and warm inside, so the fleas respond. Flea activity will be higher in summer. They like warmth. Um, but if your um, dog is in the house and you've got your your heating on the fleas will still be doing their thing just at a reduced activity than if it's like 35 degrees. So some truth to it, but they will still be active. Yeah, right. they're long, wispy. Yes. Yeah. Never mind. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I guess we'll let you go and you can practice catching fleas. You sound pretty useless at it. <laughs> well, I, I, did, I did have some practice earlier in the year, so I got quite good at it. We had our own <laughs> Oh, good. Yeah, it's always important to uh, improve skills, especially in ISO. Uh, (laughs) Good on you, Simon. We'll talk next time. Thanks, everybody. Triple. Ah. Yesterday morning, Michael Harden for the Food Interlude was talking about um, takeaway and whatnot. and it just that whole segment. By the end of it, I was just like, I just want to go out again. I just want to go out for dinner, like you know, because we don't have any. There's only two options for takeaway here, um, and I was just like, I just I miss, like, like just a random night of the week, going to the pub for dinner or going to a local restaurant. Like I just I miss it, um, <clears throat> and so I just went well. Well, why don't we go? And I said to, to Kath, I was like, should we go to the, find a pub to go to for dinner tonight? And she was like, yep. Yeah. And I'm like, um, um, so I organised it and I found out there was a pub, because a lot of the pubs were a bit late in opening up and also um, some of them, you know, aren't open during the week and whatnot. But I found one uh, in Inverloch last night uh, and – um, booked in a table, like called them to book in. Um, it's funny, like even making that that phone call, and it was like, I was like, is there any chance you can fit two people in for tonight? And they were like, oh, I don't know. And then you could, like, he was just doing the calculations because it's obviously there's only twenty people in at a time, and he was like seven, and he go fourteen, eighteen, no, nah, uh, six, and uh, makes it twelve. And then another two, oh, no. Nah. And just the whole time just going through all these calculations out loud. I was like, oh, please, please. <laughs> and then and he goes, oh, no, oh, yep, yep, that's eight, 18, yep, 7.30. You come in, two, two people in a bit at um, 7.30. I'm like, that's 
perfect. Thank you. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the greatest because, you know, this whole time. Yes, I've been out to, went out to dinner a couple of times um, since, you know, the restrictions were eased, uh, but I n- never got – like all I wanted was to go to a pub and have a, a beer and a palmer, like a pint mm. and a palmer. That's all – that's what I've been craving the whole time. And so last night I got me bloody pint and palmer wow. and it was just – Congratulations. Thank you. It felt really good. I'm so and happy it, for you. Yeah. I took a photo for you. Sarah, oh, did I you? Thought, yeah. I'm like, oh, I'll take a photo of me with my palmer and, and beard sent to Sarah. Um, but my, to be honest, though, it was a bit of an ordeal to get there. Um, so we left uh, – quite early we left just like about 4 30 because Kath was like there's a nice um it'd be nice to go for a bit of a drive like there's a nice coastal drive um just at near Inverloch and I'm like that's a beautiful idea I'm like we'll get going now before the sun goes down um and on the way you know we went and fed the horses but um as we were driving uh <laughs> we were just sitting there and it's beautiful and I'm like excited and then a huntsman walks across the windscreen and not on the outside on the inside on the inside on my side and I'm and all I do is I sit I close my eyes like it's I'm just amazed at like it, it's the same because re- I've had so many encounters with hunt- huntsmen in the last couple of months, and it's like the same. Like I'll have this, like I it's a I almost freeze, but it's everything's slow, and I'm in the moment. I'm really calm, but I just kind of I just close my eyes, and I just went, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, <laughs> and then Kath thought I was talking about because we had a podcast on and it was someone being interviewed and it was just like I wasn't even paying attention to what was what we were listening to but she was like oh I know they're dragging it on a bit and I'm like because I went can you because I went Jesus Christ Jesus Christ and and I went can you please pull over and she was like I don't think the interviews and she goes oh and then she clocked it and went, okay, and then she goes, I've just got to find a safe space, you know, wait for it, and we're going through a roundabout. And then oh, she God. Over. And was then it moving like, fast? Like, was it, had it? it? No, no, it just walked out oh. in front of the windscreen, like right in front, and then it stopped, and then it turned around, and then I closed my eyes, and then when, I, when we pulled over, it had gone uh, up, like, near the... Um, like at the top, like the yeah. the, the roof near, down. like near the the visor. Yeah. Um. But I, so I got out and kind of walked away, and then Kath, like after a couple of minutes, goes, "I can't find it." Oh, oh, come on! The worst words. I can't oh. find it, and I went, "Did you check under the visor?" And she went, "Yes. This is not my first rodeo." <laughs> I'm like, okay. And she gets it. I think I think it's gone up in the lining of the roof. Um I'm like, okay, she goes, I'm and I'm like oh Oh jeez. So um she goes, Do you want to sit? I said, I'll sit in the back. And I just 
like sat in the back and then we went and fed the horses and we she had another look while we were there and it didn't you know she couldn't find it and then I saw like when I was sitting in the back I'm like what if it comes back here I feel like it's an even smaller space in the back and Kath is a long way away so yeah. um but just sitting in the back but that's when the moment like I've had, I had this interactions with a husband and it terrifies me and it, it all like the anxiety and stuff builds up, builds up. And then when it's like, when the moment's gone, I just sit there and sob, I cry. And cause it's all this, like it all just comes out. I'll just go and then and just anyway. So, and then I, I moved to the front seat and just figured, like I imagine that it was in the between the roof and the lining of the roof, and it crawled right up to the back, and I didn't want it to crawl out on mm. the, you know, place the anyway. So, so you set fire to the car and called a taxi. <laughs> I know. Well, Kath was like, "Do you do you still do you want to cancel everything? Do you still want to go?" And I was like, "If I didn't hadn't been waiting months and months <laughs> for this Palmer and a pint of beer." I would have gone home, but it was, I just, and then she was like, should we still, do you want to go on this coastal drive? And I'm like, oh, well, let's just go for a walk. And she's like, it's going to be a really long walk because, you know, and then I was just like, oh, I'm just in such a predicament. Do I do heaps of exercise or sit in the car with a huntsman? Just, but we chased it. We thought, oh, it's all right. I haven't said like let's we'll, we'll go for a drive. But by the time, because we took so long, by the time we started this drive, the sun was was dead. It was so dark. I'm like, well, this is lovely. Like you can. But we did pull over at one spot, and um, uh, and we pulled in, and there was like this sign there, obviously saying you know where we were, like this little you know this um whatever the coast part was. Um, and then we pulled into the car park and then we pulled right in, up in front of this sign and then Kath goes, oh, look at that. They've got like a, one of those, um, like a statue of an owl on on top of the sign. She went, oh, no, it's real. It's real. But she had the high beams on and, like, I couldn't see because she's just this, the light's reflecting off the sign into my eyes and I'm trying to look to see the, see this owl and then it flies. So I see it fly off and I was like, oh, great, I've seen a huntsman. I didn't get to see an owl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's too dark. Um, and then even, uh, you know, on the on the drive home, we, um, we saw another owl on the road and I was just like, I cannot wait to get my contact lenses back because I can't see like these amazing things that I'm missing out on. Um, but I did get my Palmer. Um, but we were so early. We, we ended up buying um, a couple of beers from the, from the um, bottle shop and Kath's like, I'm going to buy beers and sit in the car and drink them. I'm like, I'm not sitting in the car to drink these beers. Oh, I'm not sitting in the car. <laughs> and she goes, well, you can, you know, do something else while I sit in the car. I'm like, I'm just, can't we just sit, let's just sit on the street. Let's just sit on this bench and drink beer. She goes, it's illegal. And I'm like, oh, who cares? We're in geez. a pandemic. We're in a <laughs> pandemic. No one cares if we're drinking a beer on the street and in vlog. It was a play. <laughs> Triple R. 
You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.